2: From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You might not know that you want to read Jonathan Escoffery's debut book, If I Survive You. Maybe you have never been to Miami. Maybe you have never thought about the experience of lighter-skinned Jamaicans within the cultural and ethnic mix of South Florida. But then perhaps you will pick up this book and read its searing opening story, and it will have you wondering about your own identity, the times people asked you, or maybe you asked, what are you? And what you might have said in that moment or didn't say. Maybe you don't need to think about your immigrant parents, or the color of your skin, or the weird overlapping hierarchies of America. But maybe you do. And we will, with Jonathan Escopere. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. This morning, we're joined by Jonathan Escoffery, whose debut book, If I Survive You, is a remarkable set of linked stories about a Jamaican immigrant family in Miami. And we want to start today's show by acknowledging the ongoing tragedy in South Florida. Hurricane Ian was so powerful and knocked out so much infrastructure that we don't even know the full extent of the damage from the storm. Today, we happen to be joined by a South Florida native, Welcome to the show, Jonathan Escoffrey.
1: Thank you, Alexis. Um, I'm really happy to be here today.
2: You know, Hurricane Andrew plays a major role in this book. And out here, I think we understand kind of what fire means as a disaster, but hurricanes are just not really part of our experience. When you as a Miami person see a storm like this coming through, like, what do you think about? Yeah, um... It's,
1: it's funny because people in South Florida hear that I'm living in California and what they're very much afraid of are uh, this idea of, of earthquakes because <laughs> when it comes to, to hurricanes, you, you just never really know whether it's actually going to hit you if you're going to spend uh, you know 12 hours, 24 hours preparing your house for um, by boarding up the, the windows and um, you know getting your emergency supplies together only for it to miss you. And um, at the same time, the, uh, what we're seeing now, obviously, is um, that full extent of when you are actually devastated by a hurricane that can, you know, it, it forms very quickly and it can totally uh, devastate your life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that um, I think I mean, a lot of... You lived of through that. Is, Yeah, I mean, I, I lived through that with Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Um, I, I think of that as a, a great marker for um, a kind of before and after in my own life and thinking about the major event that, in a sense, ended my childhood.
2: Hmm. Why did it end your childhood?
1: Well, I, you know, I had this uh, kind of happy um, uh, elementary school experience where I loved, uh, you know, reading and education and my friends. And, uh, you know, the Hurricane Andrew came in um, uh Totally destroyed my family's home. I don't think I quite understood the significance um, at uh, 11 years old until my mother and my father got back from you know what they discovered, which was we we no longer had a house. And my my mother started you know crying, and it was it was then that I realized oh this is this is serious, and um, we had to kind of. Uh, hop around from friends and and family's uh, couches and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, spare mattresses and uh, try to figure out how we were going to rebuild our life. And, um, you know, there there was never really a a going back to that um, kind of childhood innocence, I Mm -hmm. I suppose.
2: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this book is not memoir, but the main character, Trelawney, has elements of your childhood baked in and... Trelawney goes through Hurricane Andrew as well, and you have this incredible passage about sort of what it was like, and we thought maybe you could read a little bit of that. Sure. I don't
1: have to strain myself to describe what we discover in the light of the following day. The flattened houses, the overturned vehicles, you can find all of that online. I recommend typing Hurricane Andrew Aftermath into your favorite search engine, then clicking images to see what I saw the morning after. I'll say that when we finally located Cutler Ridge, then our block within it, these things were difficult with no road signs, few remaining landmarks, and many obstacles. Little more than the skeletal frame and the squishy, rotting carpet remained of our home. What the archived pictures can't convey is that a decomposing palm tree, one that's been ripped from the earth and left in the road to die, smells as pitiful as a rotting human, or that even the inanimate innards of houses stink of loss, of soaked through death post-storm. And after a day or so, this rot stifled not just Cutler Ridge, but most of Miami.
2: I mean... Your Miami is not the Miami that tourists may have encountered in the South Beach world or even just in their imaginations or Miami Vice imaginations. I mean, what was the neighborhood like that you grew up in, in Miami?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the couldn't be further from uh, South Beach in terms of uh, the the culture. Um, it, it was a, a town that is now called Cutler Bay. It's been incorporated, um, but it was then called Cutler Ridge and it was Kind of newly being developed, and, um, you know, my my I have an older brother who's four and a, he's four and a half years older. We'd hop on our bikes and we'd go exploring the the neighborhood directly behind my my townhouse, my family's townhouse. Um, there, they were developing the 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 neighborhood, but they had kind of abandoned it, and so we had this mm. um, amazing landscape where we would just uh, explore nature and um, go on these, these little adventures, in a sense, and um, try to figure out how to exist among the, uh, the wildlife that was mm. kind of populating our, our area, which included you know crabs that would come in, wash in um, you know, storm or, or no storm, or, or, or the various um, other creatures.
2: Yeah, this Miami, you know, I had a, my best friend work down there in North Miami for a long time. And I just the the sheer variety of the experience of people in Miami is something I feel like maybe Bay Area people don't understand. In particular, you know, just the the diversity of the brown and black people of South Florida because of all the immigrants from the Caribbean and Latin America. Maybe you could talk a little bit about like what was that like trying to find your way with Jamaican immigrant parents but you're also growing up in your body and trying to figure out where your place is within South Florida.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a a very interesting place because on one hand, I was going to this elementary school where um, as, as much as I have fond memories for it, I also remember the kind of indoctrination of um, American uh, exceptionalism being being taught mm-hmm. uh, day in day out. And at the same time, you know so many of my neighbors were also Caribbean immigrants like my parents. and they weren't necessarily Jamaican, but um, it was definitely a kind of mixed bag. Uh, neighborhood. And myself being born in the U.S., I, I, I was this very kind of patriotic kid. But, um, you know, as you as I grew older and I started to learn more about the the, the history of the United States and, and uh, started to learn more about how my body was perceived and received um, in Miami and in the U.S., uh, it, it you know, that, that idea that, you know, you're learning what your race is as a child, in a sense, mm. you're learning what blackness means in an, in an American, North American context. And um, for me, that was jarring, in a sense. Um, and I, I know much like my main character, Trelawney, uh, what happened with that is that I found myself exploring my Jamaicanness ness um, mm. more as I, as I came into my teenage years.
2: I mean, how did you understand the relationship between the labels Jamaican and black? Yeah, um,
1: I, you know, much like my 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 characters, I I think it was my brother who, you know, when you're when your parents are growing up in a different country, they have different kind of contexts. And Jamaica is a majority black. Um, country and what happens with black immigrants oftentimes is that they they don't necessarily feel their blackness in the same way even if they've you know historically they they have gone through uh colonialism they've, they've you know they' lived, lived through the ramifications of that they still may not understand that uh i that identity of, of of blackness the same way that people in the united states do and so for for me i i really do didn't quite know what it meant um, until uh, you know you, you you start to actually experience things like uh, exclusion because of your 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 race or um, outright you know racist remarks. That you know the first time you hear a racist remark um, that is aimed your way or, or aimed at, at someone who looks like you, you may not even know that you should be offended. Um, and, and it's not until you, you, you kind of learn what's going on uh, mm-hmm. as you're, you're growing mm-hmm. into yourself that you you start to, uh, I, I guess, solidify that identity and, and mm-hmm. understand you know, what, which boxes that you are supposed to be- belong within.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, what about going the other way? I mean, you told The New York Times that your parents simultaneously wanted you to be Jamaican and also told you, you're not Jamaican. Like, do you, they give you the knowledge and tools to understand the country that they'd been born in, or did you feel like you had to puzzle out what jamaican was on your own?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in a way, I'm still puzzling out what jamaican <laughs> is, you know. Um, but definitely, you know, I was, I, I, I was the kid who was not super interested in my Jamaican heritage un, un, until a point, and I, I think it was when I realized... Oh, when people say the all-American boy, they're not talking about Jonathan Escoffrey. <laughs> Um And so, you know, I I, I started to um, be a lot more interested in well, what would it mean to be, you know, a good Jamaican boy or a good Jamaican man or Jamaican American for that matter. And you know, we, we I grew up with these um, n- not so much lessons about Jamaicanness, but I, I grew up with my parents' history in terms of their their story of. Um, I guess, in a sense, immigration and what things were like for them in Jamaica before uh, the 1970s. Largely, uh, there was this kind of narrative of, um, you know, a, a largely peaceful country where even if people didn't have a lot, they always seemed to have enough to eat. And then the 1970s, this um, violent, this uptick in violence that was lot, largely politically motivated was um, It sent a lot of middle class Jamaicans out of the country because they, you know, their main concern became their their own safety. And so a lot of that narrative kind of lives within me growing up, uh, growing up with that narrative. And then, you know, later on feeling uh, the urge and impetus to capture that, that uh, those narratives and and in a sense, honor my parents' stories. Mm. Mm hmm.
2: We're talking with author Jonathan Scuffery about his debut short story collection, If I Survive You. This is one that hits hard. It's so good. And we want to hear from you about some of the themes of the work that Jonathan's exploring. You know, in what ways have you been questioned about your race or ethnicity? You know, people have not necessarily known what to make of who you are or where you come from or how you how you are you can give us a call at 866-733-6786 we'd also love to hear do you have an experience to share as a black immigrant in the united states the numbers 866-733-6786 twitter facebook instagram it's kqed forum and the email is forum at kqed.org i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for more right after the break Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with author Jonathan Scoffery about his debut book, If I Survive You. And we'd love to hear from you. If you're the child of immigrants, how did your parents try to transmit or keep their culture from being transmitted to you? How'd they safeguard it? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know it. It's KQED Forum. And of course, forum at kqed.org is the email. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the craft of the book here. Um, not every story is in this second person, you know, the direct like you address. But a lot of the intellectual work in this book is happening with that kind of like you, you, you. Can we talk about that choice a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, for me, the, the second person
1: in this book is... Operating in such a way that the given protagonist, the given protagonist, um, is in a sense trying to make sense of the the journey that they've been on, and trying to, um, in a say, in a sense, critique some of the decisions that they've made, but also critique some of the. Uh, the other voices, the, the phenomena of, uh, mm-hmm. voices, uh, approaching a Trelawney character and, and asking, what are you? And when he gives a response, once he starts to kind of understand the, the context for the question, um, people don't really I- accept his answers oftentimes. And so for, from a craft perspective, um, with the story being told that that openness story influx is, is told in the second person, as you said, but it's also told in this kind of long time where we're, we're following Trelawney, um, over the course of a couple of decades. Uh, Mm -hmm. we, we meet him at nine years old and, uh, we follow him through college. And, um, I, I, for, for me, it was a really great way to break down these different aspects of either his identity or, you know, sometimes it's, it's not actually his identity as he's he's often told, oh, well, you don't actually look like the Jamaicans that I've known or imagined. You actually look more Dominican. And why don't you actually why don't you actually take on that identity in a sense, which is, you know, obviously kind of ludicrous, but um the the opportunities that the second person long time kind of afforded me was that I could give the shorter sections where people are picking apart different aspects of um, Cholani's identity and then he starts to internalize that. So he starts to, in a sense, pick apart his his own, um, you know, elements of, of his own identity. And, um, you know, th- I, th- I think because it starts to sound as though, you know, things that are elemental to his blackness are uh, his baggier clothes or uh, the way he's started to walk um, uh, or talk, drag his words, all these different things that, you know, he's he's essentially mimicking other black kids in order to be perceived as black. Once he starts to, um, I guess, accept and uh, try to really latch onto this black identity. He's he's being very performative about it in a mm-hmm. way that I think comes off as comical on the page intentionally. Mm-hmm. And um but I think sometimes we do these comical things when we you know, it's in a sense it could feel safer at times just to fit ourselves into those those uh those boxes. And um, you know, he's trying to make himself legible and yeah. he's doing it in these different ways.
2: Well and like what is a culture aside from Mimicking the people around you, you know. Like (laughs) there's, there's maybe more or less, you know, uh, you know, successful ways of doing that. But you know, that is kind of we talk like each other. We end up walking like each other. I I thought, um, you know, one of the episodes that's really interesting in Trelawney's kind of racial ethnic journey is where he, after after Hurricane Andrew, uh, moves to a new school and falls in with some young Puerto Rican friends. Uh, And I thought maybe you could do another little reading for us about, you know, how their interpretation of his identity changes.
1: Uh, Right, I'll, I'll pick up on the page here. At your new school, you again fall in with the brown boys. These boys, you come to learn, are the Puerto Ricans. One, Osvaldo, takes you under his wing. You sit with his crew in the lunchroom, And every once in a while, when they break into Spanish, you stare into your lunch tray's partitioned green peas and orange carrot cubes. If you are still enough, no one will notice you in these moments. You'll become invisible. If no one can see you, no one can realize, tu no entiendes, that you don't quite fit. Osvaldo seems aware that you don't speak the language, but he's forgiving of this fault and stares the conversation back to English. Perhaps it's that you've taken to shaving your head, removing the thick curls that might otherwise peg you as different. Or perhaps you look enough like these boys, despite having a touch more Africa running through you. Or perhaps they assumed you understood that at this school and at this age, people stick to their own kind. Either way, it dawns on you just a beat late that these boys believe you too are Puerto Rican. They make cracks about white people. White people smell like cocker spaniels, but only when they're wet. They take cracks at blacks. Why do black people stink so bad? It's so blind people can hate them too. Finally, one day at lunch, a member of your group asks you, not without a level of disgust, why your parents never bothered teaching you Spanish. You expect Osvaldo to intervene, but he awaits your answer with equal anticipation. Because they don't speak Spanish, you say. The boys share confused glances. Your grandparents didn't teach them Spanish? My very Jamaican parents speak only English, you clarify. Wait, Osvaldo says, you're black? The trouble is not just that you've outed yourself, but that there is another set of boys with whom this group happens to be at war. The factions claim turf around the schoolyard, occasionally brawling under a nearby overpass. Your newness left you ignorant of the beef, but you're told these rivals hail from an island just two over from Puerto Rico, Jamaica. Osvaldo supplies this information as a parting gift.
2: You are no longer welcome at his table. Mm. That was Jonathan Scuffer reading uh, from the first story. Influx uh, from If I Survive You. You know, it's kind of a good opportunity to talk about kind of the slippage between your character, Trelawney, and yourself. Uh, how tightly coupled are you to this character? Yeah. um, Like, is there an Osvaldo?
1: That's what I'm asking. Yeah. There, there was definitely an Osvaldo (laughs) name change for, you know, creative purposes. (laughs) Protect the somewhat innocent. Right. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's funny. Like, I I don't know that I could write a scene like that without having lived through uh, an experience (laughs) very close to, to that, because otherwise what would I be doing? I I, I think I would be, you know, stoking uh, tension for, for the purpose of you know, fiction and, mm-hmm. and you know, placing a, a story in a literary magazine or, or eventually publishing a book. For me, this um, this experience was something that I had to look back on and think about, like, that was kind of strange. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as as we we're having this conversation, you know, talking about, well, if he, if Trelawney is trying to uh, embrace his blackness and he's doing that by mimicking people, you know, is blackness about, is it about culture or is it about, you know, is it is it skin? Is it your, you know, the way you appear? Because in that, you know, both in my memory and what's on the page is that, you know, I, I was actually em- embraced by the by the Latino kids because I looked to them more Latino than I looked, you know, uh, like their idea of, of, of blackness. And obviously Latino is not a, also not a race. But these I, the, the book is really interested in, in kind of unpacking these things, because sometimes we treat things um, we, t- we sometimes treat culture like it is race or race like it is culture. Mm-hmm.
2: And 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 so on. <laughs> I mean what's really interesting, I mean we've done shows on on this, that there are some you know, many Latinos actually see Latino as a as a racial category. I mean, these things have all been sort of created in their own different ways. And right. uh, you know, you look at the recent census, we did a, a great show on this at, at one point that, you know, just many Latinos just don't don't mark uh, a race or or mark, um, you know, different kinds of things. And because they do see it, it, it gets at this exact question of what is a race? What is a culture? What is an ethnicity? And I, I wondered if, you know, you chose not to write a novel, but it's also not not a novel. You know, it's this <laughs> multifocal, multivocal kind of set of linked stories. And What did that give you the ability to do that maybe having to have, you know, just Trelawney carry us, Trelawney's voice carries through the whole book would not have?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I, 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 this question keeps me up at night sometimes (laughs) because Mm -hmm. um, I, I, it's like you said, it's, it's somehow not, not a novel, but for me, I think because there's so much play with the form Mm -hmm. um, in terms of being able to go through that um kind of again like longtime second person in the first two stories and then being able to a couple of stories later um, have a a very retrospective look at Trelawney's childhood in a in a story like um pestilence that I was I was reading from um at the at the top of the show and and so there was so much play with form that I thought maybe these since these stories that kind of operate like chapters but they stand alone and they i think they invite the reader to reflect on what's come before while certainly you know um it, 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 they create the kind of intrigue where a reader will want to know um okay what happens next in the in the lives of these characters but i i thought um putting the emphasis on those self-contained stories was kind of the, what pushed me to, to call it stories. Although anyone who looks at the book will notice that we didn't actually have a subtitle. And so it doesn't say, if I survive you stories or if I survive you <laughs> a novel, because we recognized uh, we being, you know, my editors and publisher, that this is kind of form defying in a sense.
2: Yeah. You know, you, in one of the stories under the ackee tree, um, you write as Trelawney's father, and, of course, the rhythms of the speech and how it works with for this Jamaican man are, are totally different. Um, and it was kind of your first story that you know, started to win all these prizes and, and all these things. How did you think about returning to that voice in the rest of this, uh, this set of Link stories or not-not novel? Um, <laughs> or was that just kind of... That was this... You needed that one standalone of kind of moving back and also how hard was it to write in that voice i i don't think it was very difficult
1: to to write in that voice just growing up with my jamaican parents you know and and i'm not saying topper's voice on the page is the the voice of either my father or my mother but um you know, something I did do is, is, is kind of listen to a lot of um, Jamaican performers or, you know, put, put on some some dancehall and reggae just to keep... Because the, the thing is that from a craft... Um, well, just from a writing perspective, I, I had to choose what the vocabulary was going to be and I had to kind of make rules for myself. And, you know, I had to decide how deep am I going into this particular dialect um, or, or or not. And um, I had to kind of settle on on some decisions there, but uh, you know I'm interested in exploring Topper, both Topper and Sonya in in, in future stories. Um, but I, for this particular project, you know even that story under the Aki tree, I it, it, it started as a kind of Trelawney story. It started I started um, imagining that story from the the very end of the story where these characters come together at Topper's retirement party. And they, you know, they get into trouble together in a sense. And um, there's this big falling out. And I, I, I realize since so much of this is really about that decision to leave Jamaica, You know, a different kind of writer might have just wrote a a party scene that kind of implied that, you know, this is what it's like to uh, emigrate and what happens, you know, in all the years after that. But for me, I I was more interested in actually taking us back to that decision that was made in the the 1970s so that we could see, um, you know, Sonia and Topper, uh, what life was like for them while they were in Jamaica versus, um, you know, what happens when they make that decision to pack up their entire lives and their family and move to Miami and have another son who Topper doesn't always really know what to do with um,
2: and know what to do with his Americanness. Yeah. You know, I wanted to talk about, kind of turn to masculinity in this book. You know, there's so many moments in this book where kind of men are looking at each other and asking, like, what kind of man is this before me? Can you talk to me a little bit about how you tried to develop the concept of how you learn to be a man?
1: Yeah, so um we we're just talking about the story under the Yaki tree, and I, I wanted to think about the lessons that are passed down from fathers to sons. And that story, it actually starts where Topper is living in his parents' house and he's having this conversation with his father, and he's telling his father that he actually is interested in fashion design, and that is the thing that he would have liked to—that's um, what he would like to uh, explore as a as a career, as his kind of calling, in a sense. And his father says, "No, like no son of mine will will study that." Um, and the the kind of lesson he gives him is, "You can you can have your dreams and be out of my house, or you can." you know join my start working at my construction company something you know that's more associated with the masculinity and um and topper makes that he makes that choice to kind of give up his dreams in a sense and there are flickers of it throughout that story where he he tries to um reclaim his artistic tendencies or inclinations but you know the thing that actually is is able to um pay him at the end of the day turns out to be his, uh, a job as a contractor in a sense. And he starts mm-hmm. to rebuild that business. And for, for, for this entire family, all of the, all of the men tend to be, um, making a decision between their art in a sense. Delano's a, a musician, but he's also has a tree service and, um, it's, it's the, the youngest son, Chelani who, um, doesn't, I mean, although we follow him on a lot of odd jobs that really have nothing to do with um, his his love of art, he's a he sees himself as a, a writer, and um, he is maybe the the one character who is is not going to give up that uh, artistic dream for the the more um, the job that's associated with you know being being a man, and he's constantly asking himself the question because every time he gets an opportunity to. Um, possibly claw his way out of homelessness he's actually living out of his vehicle mm-hmm. for most of the the book or much of the book and um but oftentimes it, it comes at the at a kind of cost and um uh you know he has to decide you know what uh his values are and and where to go and how to negotiate his his morals in a in a sense um and you know some of the things that would benefit him personally would, potentially harm others, and and that's um, a a question that he's constantly asking himself.
2: I mean, there's really only kind of one tender moment between men in this whole book, and it happens kind of around this dog getting deciding not to neuter. You know, Trelawney and Delano and their father decide not to neuter the dog. Uh, Did you want to put more tenderness in this book and felt like it just wasn't true to life, or did you feel like... um, there was a lesson in the lack of that tenderness. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about that
1: moment is it's one of those moments where, you know, in a sense, a lesson is being passed down from father to these these three boys, his, his two sons and, and Topper's nephew as well. And um, the, the the lesson that's given is that it's as Delano says, I, I'd rather be dead than have my balls chopped off, referring to their dog that they're <laughs> trying to decide on whether or not to neuter because the dog's been Getting into trouble, kind of getting uh, escaping the the backyard at night, visiting the neighboring dogs, and um, and Topper affirms what Delano says. He says, you know, it's what makes a man a man, and and that's the lesson that he is passing on to these boys. And and it's only really Trelawney who is he. he fakes like he agrees, but in retrospect, he's like there's, you know, something was wrong within that moment. And so man. it's it's in a way, it's like. Even though that's where the that's the tender moment, the tender moment mm-hmm. is kind of warped. I yeah. think laced and, and with he, something exactly, yeah. and Trelawney's yeah. recognizing these things.
2: We're talking with author Jonathan Escopri about his debut book, "If I Survive You." I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about this excellent new book, If I Survive You, with its author, Jonathan Sculfery. And we, of course, do uh, love hearing from you about your experiences that might connect with uh, Jonathan's or this book's uh, themes. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the emails forum at kqed.org. Uh, You know, I wanted to ask you about, you know, the keen observations in this book about how black people interpret each other and are interpreted by other people, depending on where in the country they are. So you've spent time in Miami, you've spent time in Boston, in Minnesota. Now you're in Oakland. So what would you say, the book has a lot about those other places, but what would you say about your particular variety of black experience in Oakland relative to those other regions of the country? Oh, wow. (laughs) Um,
1: You know, this is one of the regions where I I think my experience anyway is that, like, black people show each other love here. Um, And, you know, so so to me, I have this dividing line, right? It's like I, I walk into... Uh, a a restaurant or maybe not a restaurant. Like I go to an event where they're having a banquet and, you know, there's the the white linen cloth tables (laughs) and, and, you know, my, my question is if, if there are other black people working here, are they happy to see me or are they upset to see me? Um, Are are they like welcoming? Are they, are they not? Some, some places I've, I've lived, they've, they've been, um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like this internalized something or another where, uh, they, they feel that some of those spaces aren't for you and that you might think you're special. Um, if you feel you belong in those, those, uh, spaces. Mm. And, um, at least that's the impression that I've had. And I, I've, um, had, you know, Really wonderful experiences here with with where uh there there doesn't seem to be that kind of um, reception at least uh, so mm-hmm. far in my
2: year of being in the area. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I also had kind of a meta reflection. Uh, our producer Blanca and I were talking about the way that you know you've been presented kind of as a, a writer in the world, and people talking about your sort of unusual path to becoming a writer. But you did undergrad writing, then an MFA, have a ton of literary friends, have gotten a bunch of prestigious <laughs> fellowships. Like, it feels to me you're not exactly a person who anyone should be shocked wrote such a great book. Like, this is your life work. I mean, is that something you perceive in the way that you're being presented out there?
1: Yeah, I never know what they're talking about, to be <laughs> to be <laughs> honest. But, um, you know, a thing that maybe it's happened in less now, because I, I tend to... Um, I don't know. Put my age out there, but there, there was this thing that was happening around the time that the parish, the sorry, under the Yaki tree, the parish review story uh, was getting a lot of attention. Where you know, people would just kind of make up an age for me. <laughs> I guess maybe they googled me and saw a picture, and they were like, "He's barely thirty years old," you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm in my forties, uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm proud of that. Uh, I, I'm not somebody who you know, wrote a book at at 20 something and no, you know, I mean, if if I would have liked to have written a book at 20 something, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Um, but, but it's been, it's been a long journey and part of the great critical reception the books having is because I spent, you know, like 10 years on this book. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think you spend 10 years on, on a thing, um, especially something that you do have a lot of, you know, education and, and practice with, uh, with all those, those programs I've, I've been in, uh, you know, it should be, it should be kind of good, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> you know?
2: Um, I mean, you also are, uh, began work on a second book as well, which I think you sold kind of at the same time, yes. um, as you sold If I Survive You. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that one and sort of how it may be different or the same from, uh, If I Survive You?
1: Oh gosh. Um, you know it, it it takes place uh in Miami um it it will have a, a, a mix a, a multicultural cast <laughs> so i guess in those ways it's, it's very similar i you know i i don't want to get into the weeds too much with with that one cuz it's not actually finished <laughs> and what yeah. i've found myself doing is um in these these interviews i've been giving fake novel pitches just so people will kind of get off my <laughs> they, they won't be able to um i don't know yeah. get, you don't want get to talk the book
2: before you write the book uh, yes I, told, I understand exactly that. i understand
1: exactly, I understand exactly. and and i'll tell you though when i queried my my agent um i had that novel pitch in there and i really thought um i'm done with if I survive you, <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna spend you know all of my focus I'm gonna I'm gonna put into into this novel, and and what I found was that I really needed to finish if I survive you like for <laughs> real for real, um and and so that's where where those years were spent. Yeah, uh,
2: I want to just read you some comments. One listener uh, tweets: "My partner was born in London with Jamaican parents, raised in New Jersey, Baltimore, Berkeley. I will be sharing this book with him." Uh, another listener writes. This discussion on identity really hits home for me. My father is from Ireland and my mom from Nicaragua. I have visited both countries a few times, and it always shocks me what each visit draws out of me. The same goes for conversations here in the Bay. People tend to hone in on different aspects of my dual heritage depending on their own prejudices. But for myself, how I define myself, I feel to be lenticular, two cultures in perpetual conversation. And one one thing I wanted to ask you about is when you've gone back to Jamaica how you have felt have you felt like inside of the culture or have you felt outside of the culture
1: i have felt on
2: on arrival i
1: feel outside of the culture um i never feel as american as i do when i'm um not just outside of the us but when I'm in Jamaica in particular mm-hmm. and you know it's it's I, I you know I'll even find myself affecting a bit of a Jamaican accent and people will be like mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice try <laughs> yeah 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 maybe cut that out uh, <laughs> but uh you know but that's you know again my my I, my parents are Jamaican. I grew up in a Jamaican household very much so and so you know some of that is you, you can put it on a, a little too thick but you know every once in a while somebody here in the U.S. will say hey you say that you say that word like a Jamaican or you say it kind of kind of different. Um, but, you know, what I did find in Jamaica is that after about a week or so, I, I breathed so easily just not having that kind of minoritized experience that mm-hmm. I suffer through every day of my life in the U.S. And I know that might be kind of a, a pessimistic way to, to, to look at things. But if you if you are not a a minority in the U.S. and you you know if you've had the benefit of looking around and and uh, maybe living in uh, homogenous areas, which you know I know we are 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 definitely um, at a place uh, a lot of us anyway where multiculturalism is is the wonderful thing. But if you are someone like me who sometimes is like the multi. I bring all the (laughs) (laughs) multiculture to the room and I'm the only, you know what I mean? I am the diversity uh, oftentimes. Um, It can be really nice to step away from that for at least a short time where you can just be, in a sense, Mm -hmm. and not fulfill that role.
2: I think, you know, there's a strong tradition of Afro-pessimism, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, You know, one thing that always strikes me when I go to Mexico uh, where my dad is from is the class components of society really like stick out to me mm-hmm. and of course there's you know incredible inequality in the United States there's incredible class components but it's almost like it's easier to see another kind of water um, wh- how, how does that work for you when you go back to Jamaica to try and understand this mix of class and color and culture that are, are at play there it's it's really. And that, and that you talk about in the book a lot. I do. It's like a, I, do like
1: a... I do. I talk about the color thing, the, the class thing. When you go to Jamaica, if you notice the color thing um, and you comment on it, what what people will immediately say is, no, 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 there's no racism here. It's, it's all class issues. They accept that there are class issues, at least, <laughs> um, they, you know, their take on the class issues may be, uh, sometimes upsetting depending on who you're, you're speaking with. But, um, I, I, did find that weird thing where I had to consider like, oh, I, in a sense, because I'm, I, I visit there and it's often with middle-class Jamaicans and, um, you know, I, the, the book, I think, goes further into this idea of these um, lighter-skinned uh, Jamaicans kind of grouping together. Um, but but what I will say is that, you know, my experience there is that, oh, like, I would actually be, like, the privileged class here in a way that I, I hadn't really mm-hmm. experienced before. And then I had to think about and really listen to what people were saying. And some of what people were saying was kind of problematic in terms of um, what they— the experience that they expect their light, lighter skin to get them, or the experience that their class privilege—you um, know what they expect from that—without mm-hmm. necessarily considering what it may have been like to been to to have been born on the on the other side of of you know the economic tracks or, or class divide, and um, and that you know as somebody with who has this liberal arts uh, education. <laughs> um, it's it's hard to it's hard to swallow. And in a way, you know, I know that, you know, I can imagine and in, in the same way my character Trelawney imagines that if his parents had never left Jamaica, he would be one of those people who, mm-hmm. you know, is kind of spoiled and kind of privileged. And um, but but. You know, even though in in my at my lowest moments, I might envy that. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's like I can't not critique it, and I can't I can't not say, oh, like that attitude. I I find you know lots of problems with, um, you know, it's something some people will say over there is you know these you know if if these people worked harder, you know, <laughs> and it's like how? Like, Wait a second, I heard that before. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and and, it, and it, doesn't work, um, it doesn't work for me here, and it doesn't work for me over in Jamaica either.
2: Yeah, so interesting. Um, you know, I was hoping you could read one short passage about, you know, the, the Jamaica that Americans think they know, or what they do when you mention Jamaica. You want to go ahead? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: My parents came to the U.S. not for economic advancement, but to escape the violence the U.S. government funded in Jamaica throughout the 1970s as part of its war on socialism. But when I say Jamaica to non-Jamaicans, no one thinks of CIA operatives or puppet prime ministers or historical continuity. Instead, they break into free association as if they'd been tossed into a rap cipher. Bob Marley, Irie, Ganja, poor people, sandals, Eman. At best, they believe our history began the moment they purchased their
2: all-inclusive vacation package. Oh, man. It's just, I, I'm cringing for the nation uh, reading that package, <laughs> uh, that passage, because you can, you know, you'd, I mean, you'd, uh, you know, every time... You can just know the exact moments when these things uh, were happening. Um, this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I also just wanted to take this opportunity, based on that passage, for you to tell us about that violence and that U.S. involvement that drove your parents out. Like, how? To, just
1: fill us in. Yeah, I mean, essentially there are, you know, two, um, much like the U.S., there are two um, main political parties in Jamaica. And, um, you know, after independence, uh, Jamaica gained independence from Britain, from the the crown. And um, the island was basically deciding, you know, the nation was deciding who they were going to be. And um, at a certain point, when Michael Manley Came into who's a PNP prime prime minister. When he came into power, he started talking a lot about uh, basically bridging the gaps between the redistributing the wealth, redistributing yeah. the wealth, in, in short. And he was, you know, buddying up with Castro is is how uh, my parents' generation tends to put it. And he would say these things like, um, you know, if you're middle class, or if you're upper middle class, if you're wealthy and you think you're, you you know, you have a problem with redistribu- re- redistributing the wealth, there are five flights a day to Miami, and you can leave, but you're not taking your wealth with you. Mm. And so that's a very scary thing for a lot of people to to, to hear. Um, uh, you know, on the other side of that, though, is the the kind of U.S. intervention um, in order to prevent Jamaica from, from becoming anything close to uh, a Cuba or from, you know, prevent Michael Manley from becoming a uh, Fidel Castro as as they might have, have seen it. Um, but, you know, there really weren't too many people who, other than Michael Manley and his party who were actually concerned about doing anything <laughs> for the poor. And so, you know, it was, um, I, I think a lot of people who, like my parents, who, who left the country at that time, look back and retrospectively think better of Michael Man- Man- Michael manley at, at this mm. point in time um, at the time though it was it was very much um you know they weren't they weren't super fond of him after a while um, but in terms of the violence what, what would happen is that these different you, you know shadowy groups would be providing the poorer member the, the poorer communities in, in a sense with weapons and at the same time you know anytime it was on the election season these different Political parties would kind of break out into into war in the streets, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that's not too too hyperbolic to, to to say. But a lot of the violence was happening as those people were. Um, you know, provided things like guns and drugs, and um, and this is where the CIA operatives um, aspect of it comes into comes into play. And you know, if you talk to again, like my father would always say, yeah, we we knew, and my mother, and 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 all of the Jamaicans I know who of, of that age who were around in the '70s would say we actually know who our local CIA guy is and he comes to, you know, this and that party and he's always at this hotel and he's always with, you know, trying to date those people. And, um, so these, these were like open secrets that were Mm -hmm. happening and it's been, you know, it's been further documented than, than that oral oral history that I grew up with. But, um, that's the part that, uh, you know, has, has kind of stuck with me, um, in a, in a sense, How how
2: do you think that knowledge of sort of the U.S.'s role in the Caribbean changes like the way you read U.S. politics? The
1: the major takeaway for me, I think, is, you know, for people who don't like – immigrants coming to this country, (laughs) to the United States. I I think, you know, look at the look at what the United States does in in other countries to actually cause people to feel that they need to leave their homelands. And, you know, the instability that um, the U.S. government causes um, as they they choose, uh, you know, who who they believe should be running, quote unquote, uh, mm-hmm. these these other countries in their in their backyard in, in the Caribbean and Latin America, um, because you know these things are linked, essentially, right? It's like yeah. if if that violence had not been exacerbated, my parents wouldn't have felt the need to to leave, and they were they were middle class Jamaicans, so you know it wasn't really about coming to the U.S. for opportunity. Um, it was about fleeing. Um, mm-hmm.
2: something that the U.S. government had a, a hand in. Yeah. You know, Ginny writes in to say, your guest story does resonate with me and probably many Americans born to immigrant parents. I find myself not quite American and not quite Taiwanese. I grew up in Texas with some nice white folk and some racist kids who bullied and ostracized me. I thought if I was bilingual that my Taiwanese side would be validated, but this was sorely debunked by a Taiwanese taxi driver who assumed I was Japanese because of my American accent when I spoke Mandarin and mm. Taiwanese. Story, these stories are going to connect with you out there, people. This is the book, If I Survive You. We've been talking with its author, Jonathan Escoffrey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. The nine o'clock hour forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, Jennifer Ng, Lakshmi, Sarah, and Dan Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, Chris Hopp. Our interns are Paul C. Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda. Susan Davis is the senior producer. Our executive editor is Ethan tovin lindsay And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. The book has been If I Survive You. The author is Jonathan Escoffri, who we get to claim as Oakland's own, at least for a while. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.